So today and for the next several months, we're going to be looking at the book of Mark. And in fact, we've already been looking at the book of Mark. On Palm Sunday, we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus. On Good Friday, pastors Andrew and Jim and Michael preached through the, the Mark 15, the death of Jesus Christ. Last week on Easter Sunday, we dealt with Mark 16. And today we go back to the beginning. And over these next four months, we're going to walk through this great gospel, chapter by chapter, in order to see Jesus. And Mark chapter 1 in particular helps us understand the book of Mark, and in, in a very real sense, helps us to understand the book of Mark as a whole. And so what we need to do this morning is to see the macro picture of the book of Mark by particularly looking at the first chapter. And the big picture of Mark has two very distinct parts. The first is this, Mark is going to ask and answer the question, who is Jesus and what has he come to accomplish? And the second big theme in the book of Mark is, how are we to relate to this Jesus as Mark describes him? So first, who is Jesus and what he has done? Second, how are we to relate to this Jesus? Let's look at the first question, who is Jesus and what has he come to accomplish? And what we see in the very first verse of chapter 1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are introduced to a crucial identity marker for Jesus. He is the Son of God. Now this is further developed in verses 9, 10, and 11 in chapter 1 as Mark describes the baptism of Jesus. Let's take a look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, this is speaking of Jesus at his baptism, immediately he saw the, seven, the heavens opened and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is Father God's assessment of Jesus. He is the beloved son. Now, what's interesting about what Mark does here is this language, this Son of God language, comes right out of Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. So let's turn to Psalm 2, it's page 448 in your church Bible, Psalm 2, to see where Mark uh, is, and, and, and where this, this voice coming out of heaven, Father God's voice, where this phrase comes from, Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2, in the beginning of Psalm 2, talks about a rebellion against God and his anointed king. And then in verse 6, it says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7 goes on, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What you're seeing in Psalm 2 is probably an official wording of the enthronement of a Davidic king. This is what would be said as the kingship of Israel passed from one father to his son. Originally, these verses probably have to do with David talking about his son Solomon who would succeed him. But the reality is, almost every commentator, and certainly in the New Testament, as Psalm 2 is quoted a number of different times, Psalm 2 is clearly messianic. Yes, it had a reference to David and Solomon and all the other human Davidic kings. 
But it is talking about the ultimate Davidic king, the son. Be referring to this ruler, the Lord's son, who will rule over Israel, but also reign over the entire world. As we see in verse 8, as the psalm says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What we have in the first chapter of Mark is God the Father is saying, this is my son, and he is referring to this idea that Jesus is the promised son, the promised son of God, who will rule the world as God's co-regent in reestablishing God's personal reign and rule upon the earth. The son, Jesus, means that this Jesus, as Mark describes him, is this co-regent, is this promised king, is this promised Messiah. And he has come to restore God's rightful and righteous authority over a rebellious world. Furthermore, in Mark 1, and we can go back to Mark 1, as we go back to verses 14 and 15, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is self-consciously stating that he is this king. In other words, the kingdom is near precisely because the king has come in the person of Jesus. And he has come to bring his rule and reign of of God back on the earth. He's, He's come to put down the rebellion that characterizes the world and restore in real time the kingdom of God. And what people need to do as Jesus has entered the world, they need to repent and believe the gospel that in Jesus... The cosmic uh, uh, reordering of the world under the authority of God is going to happen. This is the picture we have of Jesus. Now what's interesting about this son of God language coming right out of Psalm 2 is that it's repeated again right in the middle of the book. So I need you to turn to Mark Chapter 9, verse 7, that's page 844 of your church Bible. Mark 9. In Mark 9, 1 through 6, we read of Peter, James, and John are being given a picture of the glory of Jesus. We call this the transfiguration. Jesus was fully God when he came to earth, but in his humanity, his, his Godhead in some sense was disguised. But in Mark 9, 1 through 6, the glory of Jesus is displayed to these three followers of Jesus. They're really not sure what to do. And Peter, like always, opens his mouth and says something ridiculous. We won't deal, we'll deal with that later as we get to that. But in verse 7, we see this son of God language again. Verse 7 says of, of Mark 9, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, Father God is saying that my son Jesus is the the one that was prophesied, this son of David who would come and rule Israel, but then rule the world, restoring the rule and reign of God over all the earth. That's what Mark is driving at. 
in his gospel. But this is also mentioned at the end of the book. So you need to turn to Mark 15, 39, page 853 in your church Bible. And this is unbelievable in my mind. This is an incredible description that Mark gives of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so in Mark 15, 39, Jesus has just passed away. And here's what happens. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see what Mark is doing here? At the very beginning, this is my beloved son. In the middle of the book, this is my beloved son. But at the very end of the book, it's a Roman centurion who recognizes that Jesus is that son of God. Now, we don't know how, how much he understood if he had heard some of Jesus' previous preaching. But here is this Gentile Roman soldier, part of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen, imperial Rome at the death of Jesus said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And this is incredible for two reasons. Number one, you don't normally associate the king, the son, the promised Davidic son who would come and restore the world under the authority of God. You don't normally associate a king with a crucified Messiah. You don't normally associate the, the, the most powerful person in the world who has come to restore the rule and reign of God as someone who is humiliated, bleeding, dead on a cross. It's unthinkable. But that's how Mark puts his gospel together. But there's another thing that's kind of amazing about this is that this is a Roman soldier. And in Rome... The only person you would have called the son of God, you would not have called any of the pantheon of gods that the Romans worshipped the son of God. No, the only one you would have called the son of God was Caesar himself. It was Octavius who then became Caesar Augustus who started this cultic worship of himself. And he claimed the title for himself, son of God. He was the one that Romans believed would bring in peace. And he did to some extent the Pax Romana where the Roman Empire and most of the world at that time in the, under the control of the Romans did have a period of peace. You would have called Caesar the son of God, but not a Jewish Messiah who's hanging on a cross. In fact, what the Roman soldier did would almost be viewed as treacherous, treasonous. And yet there he is. The centurion in some fashion recognizes well, Mark has been driving throughout his book that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the Son of God, and you can see that he's the Son of God while he's being crucified. And Mark will spend about half of his book walking us through the passion of Jesus, the events leading up to Jesus' death. He will spend more time, in comparison to the other gospel writers, more of his book written about that death of Jesus and his resurrection than any of the other gospel writers. In fact, some commentators have said, what Mark is, is truly a book about the death of Jesus with a very long introduction, Mark 1 through 8. Now, this is where the rub comes for us. 
is that what Mark is trying to say to us is that if we can't keep in mind who Jesus is, that he's the son, the promised king who will restore the rule and reign of God, that every knee should bow before him, but that same king is a crucified king. If we don't see that image, that vision of who Jesus actually is, it will be very difficult for us to be motivated to follow him. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we sometimes struggle to keep that vision of Jesus before us. And too often Jesus becomes a means to an end, not the end. Jesus becomes the one who's our personal coach. He's going to help our marriage, our kids, our career, our health, all be, be, be work out. That's not the picture of Jesus. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 1. Because what... Mark is going to do in this first chapter is he's going to illustrate the reality that Jesus is this son, this promised king to restore the rule and reign of God on the earth in real time. And he's going to illustrate the reality of that by describing to us the busiest day in the life of Jesus. It all happens on one Sabbath day early on in Jesus's ministry. Let's take a look at verse 21 and just walk through this. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is the first picture that what Jesus is is not just a great healer, not just a miracle worker, not just a wonderful teacher. He's the coming king. And he teaches with authority. Most rabbis, as they, or most people who would teach in the synagogue, would quote all of the different rabbis and, and try to show the, the, the congregation which of the rabbis they supported and argue in that way. Not Jesus. When you look in the gospel record, you will never see Jesus saying, uh, this is what the Lord says. He doesn't do that. In fact, when you see when Jesus speaks about the word of God, he usually says this phrase, you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say unto you, because he has all authority. He is the son of David, promised in Psalm 2, the coming king, the co-regent of God, who has come to restore the world under the authority of God himself. Verse 23, we see another example of the authority of Jesus as the Son. Immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus has come as the son, the Messiah, the, the son of David, the, the ultimate son of David, who would come to restore the reign and rule of God. He is in opposition to Satan, who has set up this alternative kingdom. And Jesus shows that he has authority over Satan by casting out this demon, muzzling the demon. Again, an illustration that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. 
verse 20. Uh, wait, let's go on and uh, so we go on to verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about it. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. By Jesus healing the sick, by rolling back sickness, Jesus is demonstrating that the king has come, and he is now going to reverse, in some sense, sickness and sin and all of the effects of sin. He's beginning to roll back that, those manifestations of sin that have, uh, that have harmed the world. And he begins to reestablish his kingship. Is the rule of God over the world by the healing of this sickness. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark tells us that Jesus is the Son, promised in Psalm 2. The idea that Jesus is the Son of God frames the book of Mark. And in this first chapter of Mark, all of the illustrations of this busiest day in the, life, in the recorded life of Jesus on this Sabbath demonstrate that the King has come and he is beginning to restore the personal reign of God over the earth. Now clearly, this kingdom will not be fully consummated until he returns again, but the King has come and sickness, death, the evil one, the alternative kingdoms of the world are being rolled back. Now, my fear for all of us is that we lose sight of this son of David, this king, this co-regent of God, but we lose sight that he's the, he's the king, but he was crucified. He's the king, but he laid down his life. We don't understand that kind of power. We're used to the pomp and circumstance of powerful people being able to direct people, not hang on a cross, not be humiliated at the cross. While I was uh, recovering uh, in the early days of, uh, after my knee surgery, it was a little difficult to read because they put you on a heavy narcotic. So I read a lot of books that I can't remember too well. But one of them I do remember. I've always wanted to go on the Battle of Princeton tour. You know, you see that there on the, the battlefield park. I've never been able to go on that. I've read a few things about that. I've heard a rumor that Alexander Hamilton was part of the Battle of Princeton. I don't know if it's true, but it's really cool to say it. But I read a book called The Winter Soldiers. It's really the story of the first year of America's Revolutionary War against Great Britain. George Washington was the commander-in-chief, and the entire year went badly. George Washington lost every skirmish he had with the British for most of the year. He spent more of his time retreating. I mean, he was the, he was the general, and all he could really say until the very last day of, of, of 1776 was, we didn't lose as many men because I really got good at leading the army in retreat. I think some of you remember the story, how he comes across the Delaware River, and he comes into Trenton. 
He surprises the Hessians, the German soldiers who are working with Great Britain, overturns that stronghold, and then he comes, leads his troops up into Princeton. Now, just to try to help you understand, the British find out about Trenton, they send troops down, kind of on Princeton Pike, sort of. George Washington does an end run around that. He kind of goes around, it wasn't Route 1, but kind of Route 1 and then gets on Quaker Road. <laughs> Quaker Road is true, Route 1 not so true. And George Washington begins to lead his troops into Princeton to take that garrison as well. And it's just a fantastic scene. Again, George Washington at this time, most people, many people think maybe he should be replaced. There are people in the American army, generals, Generals Lee, Charles Lee, who thought he should be replaced. And of course, conveniently, Charles Lee thought he should be the one to lead the army. And that was almost going to happen, except Charles Lee got taken by the British. It's hard to be a general when you're in a British prison. But as they came through the Thomas Clark House, which many of you have seen when you come up uh, Quaker Road there, as they were moving up into the southern portion of Princeton, George Washington sees an opportunity to, to really do damage to the British forces. And so he leads his troops himself. He's on his white horse. He says, tells the men to follow him. He tells them, don't fire until I tell you to. So he leads the men up, and then he tells them to halt. And at a crucial port, portion in this part of this battle, then Washington says, fire. And both the American side and the British side together fire at the same time. And John Fitzgerald, seeing the general out there directly in the line of fire between the two opposing armies, admits that he pulled his hat over his eyes because he did not want to see George Washington fall off his horse being shot. And instead, when the smoke cleared, Fitzgerald looked again and he saw the commander-in-chief still in the saddle, calm and unharmed, waving the troops forward. And we would go ahead to put a few cannonballs into Nassau Hall. And these two victories, the Battle of Trenton and Battle of Princeton, actually are viewed as the turning point in the Revolutionary War. Well, that's a wonderful story, and that's how we view a, a, a powerful person on a horse in the middle of a battle, directing the troops, risking his life, all the courage. And where is our king at the end of his life? He's hanging on a cross, humiliated, dead, mocked. And why did he do this? to rescue you and me from our rebellion. I mean, what kind of a king is this? There's no prime minister that I'm aware of. There's no leader or king in the world today. There's no president even of a republic who basically decides, I will go and die for my country. No, what they do is they send other people in the army to die for the country. And what is Jesus doing? Our king the son of David, the one who would restore the rule and reign of God on the earth. He has to go to the cross in order to accomplish that for us, but also for the entire world. And that's the vision of Jesus we need to hold on to. 
That's the answer to the first question. What did Jesus, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? There's a second question though, is what are we, how are we to relate to this Jesus? One of the things you have to understand about the book of Mark is that we believe that Mark wrote his gospel in the mid-60s. We believe that Mark wrote the gospel of Mark while he was in Rome. We believe that Mark wrote his gospel to Gentile believers primarily in Rome who are under the persecution of the emperor Nero. There's been a massive fire in Rome. Nero's under political pressure. He then blames the fire on the Christians. And now the Christians experience a couple of years of very serious persecution. And Mark is writing to these believers to help them endure the persecution that they are under. And what Mark calls for in this gospel is that we lay down our lives. As our king laid his life down for us, we need to be ready to lay down our entire existence to him. Let's look at Mark 8.34 just to see one of a number of passages where Mark brings this to bear. Mark 8.34, it's page 844 in your church Bible. Mark 8, 34, uh, Jesus, again, uh, has just told his disciples he's going to have to die. He will rise again. And then he says, he called to the crowd with his disciples and said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What Mark is driving at is that believers who are getting pushed back from the alternative kingdoms that exist in the world, even as we present Jesus as the coming king, the one who has come to bring freedom and forgiveness and to remake the world under the authority of God, we must endure and it's going to cost us. We don't like that. We, we like the idea that Jesus died for us. We don't like the idea that because Jesus died for us, it means that because he died for us, when we suffer, we become like Jesus. Nobody wants that. I can't believe how wimpy I've been in this knee recovery. It's embarrassing. Ask Denise. She can regale you with stories. In order to get this knee right, it costs me an immense amount of pain. I, my physical therapist is, 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 is tough, evil even. <laughs> he doesn't care about my feelings. The first day I was in therapy, physical therapist, four days after surgery. My knee could only bend 50 degrees, and he kept trying to bend it further, and I was screaming. It was that bad. He was unconcerned. He doesn't care when I hurt. He doesn't care when I complain. He tells me to shut up. I'm going to get your knee back into shape. I don't care if you don't like me. You'll thank me later. We do the same thing with Jesus. Oh, we like the Jesus who died for us. We like the Jesus who forgives our sins. We like the Jesus who answers our prayers, and he does many times. 
We don't like the Jesus who says, I died in order to redeem a broken world and you. And if you are going to be my followers participating in my plan to bring the world back under my authority, guess what? You're going to have to suffer too because you're going to be presenting the message the same message Jesus gave, you're going to be presenting a message and the alternative kingdoms of this world will not like it. Now, I don't want anybody to get into a persecution complex. I, I do see North American Christians, you know, oh, the world's so terrible and oh, we were persecuted. Just stop. I love you, but you, there are millions of Christians who live all over the world who have it a hundred times worse than we do. On the other hand, if you're not getting pushback from the culture, you're probably not living all out for this king and his kingdom. So let me briefly give a couple of ways that we can relate to this King Jesus in following him more fully, more completely with all-out discipleship. Take a look at Mark 1, 16 to 20. This is the calling of the first disciples. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He does the same thing with James and John later. Now, I suspect that Jesus already knew these four individuals. It'd be kind of weird if, you know, Jesus came up as a stranger and said, follow me. They probably had some discussion. But the reality is they come and follow him and they leave everything to follow him. And what's interesting is the term fishers of men. In, in the Old Testament, every time God is called a fisher of men, it's for judgment. And I think what you have here is that now that the son, the vice regent, ruling and reigning the world has come to, to, to bring the world back under the authority of God, repentance is absolutely necessary. And the disciples need to be witnesses to the king and to his work, his death and resurrection. And these disciples will have to be the ones who present to their world, as we need to present to our world, the necessity of repentance required now that the nearness of the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. And what's happening here is that the son is inviting human beings to join him in his mission to reestablish God's rule over the universe. What Jesus is doing here is, is, is restoring us, human beings, to where we once were in Genesis 1, when we were told that we would rule the world under the authority of God. And while sin has, and rebellion has marred all that, in the person of Jesus, he is inviting people who will repent and trust in Christ alone to join him in our previous cosmic role of ruling the world under the authority of God himself. And I don't think it's an accident when then Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He says, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to orient our entire lives around Jesus, who he is, this crucified king, and his mission to restore the world under his authority. Anything less is not really following Jesus. And of course, that's one of the dangers that Mark mentions here. 
Go back to verse 35. Jesus has had this very busy day on the Sabbath. He's healed. He's cast out demons. He's taught in the synagogue. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law, all demonstrating his power as the king. And what does it say in verse 35? Rising very early in the morning, while it's still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This convicts me all the time. On a Monday morning after a busy time at church, I don't really think about, boy, I should get up at 3 in the morning and really pray. I want to sleep in. But there's Jesus praying, right? And then verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. In other words, the, the disciples are like saying, we've got a big crowd. The ministry's growing. Come on, Jesus, keep healing. And Jesus, by going to his father and asking for guidance so that he can stay on mission, knows that he's got to leave there and go preach the gospel somewhere else. Because why? The danger here is that the crowd wants Jesus, not on Jesus' terms, they want Jesus for what he can do for them. They're treating Jesus as a means to an end, and we all face that same temptation. How many of us, when Jesus doesn't answer a prayer the way we think he ought to, we say, well, you know, I go, well, what's up with that, Jesus? Why? Because we want Jesus to be our personal, you know, coach, our life coach, our personal assistant. He's the king. And we have to be about his agenda and his purposes. One last thing about, it's interesting that Jesus prays, and when he prays, the father tells him to move on. It does say that he will go throughout all Galilee and he will preach in their synagogues and he will cast out demons. Now, casting out demons was a sign that he was the king that was, who was uh, rooting out the rebelliousness that Satan had created, the alternative kingdoms of the world. But he went preaching and he got sort of that focus and kept his focus because he spent time with his father in prayer. And of Jesus, who was the son, who was the Messiah, who was the co-regent with God to rule the word, if Jesus, who was truly God and truly man, if he needed prayer, how much prayer do you think you need? So that you stay on focus. I think one of the challenging things about this text, as I read it, Jesus is a model here, I think, that Jesus is giving us, is that it's so easy for us to be involved in all kinds of good things, I'm not even talking about sin. We are, we're so busy, involved in good things, but we haven't spent enough time in prayer with God to really know if these are the things that we ought to do in light of Jesus and his coming kingdom. And so this text calls us out to follow fully this king, to lay down our lives if necessary for this king and his kingdom agenda, to be in prayer so that the Father God can guide us into these priorities so that we can be a part, fully a part of this king's attempt to bring the rebellion of the world to a halt, to bring back the rule and reign of God. And one day we know he will do that. One day, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. But as we move forward, as we pray, 
to the Father for direction as we treat Jesus as the end of our lives, not a means to an end, as we lay our life and everything before him. We begin to relate to this king the only way he ought to be related to, which is to pour our lives out for him and everything that is a part of. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the co-regent. You're the son. You are bringing the world together under your authority. And one day when you return again, you will complete that work. And you've asked us to be a part of it for those of us who know Christ. And I pray that you would help us to be guided by you as we pray, to guide us to the priorities that we need to be involved in so that we can be part of your great rescue effort for this world. Help us to be faithful to you despite the pushback. Help us to be willing to pour out our lives for you. Help us to treat you as the end, not the means. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.